All right, if you got your Bibles, which of course you do, why wouldn't you? First Thessalonians chapter 2. We've been working our way through Thessalonians. We're going to go through first and second. Speaking of end times, we're not there yet, but we're getting there. Uh, we're going to take a whole four verses. So uh, we're going to do verse 13 through 16. Um, and, I, and I know it, it, it doesn't work perfect. Uh, I was putting this together actually two weeks ago during Thanksgiving week. Um, and so just it was just a crazy week. And so I knew if I bit off too much that you guys would be here for three hours instead of 45 minutes. So um, we're just going to go here. And then Brent will have to find his way into this thought when he comes back in 17. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God and Jesus Christ that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Um, there's a lot of uh, really good sayings that come out of the mouth of men. I've learned a lot of uh, good life sayings that uh, my dad used to say, uh, that my grandparents uh, used to say, my grandfathers used to say. Uh, there's a lot of helpful life sayings that come from men. Um, I've collected and used many of them in my own life uh, over the last 48 years. Uh, there's words of wisdom. There's words of inspiration. There's words of uh, encouragement. There's words of positivity. Uh, my Facebook thread uh, is is uh, full of them every day. Uh, there's always somebody um, or multiple people on Facebook that are posting these inspirational uh, little life sayings uh, that are to help you in life. These are a couple of the ones that um, I actually uh, saw on there this week, if I could find them. Uh, here's one. If you want something you never had, uh, you need to do something you've never done. You ever heard that one before? I've used that on people. I think my kids, mostly. Uh, I've used that on them. It's a, it's a good one to use on them. The best view comes after the hardest climb, right? Uh, the, the pain that you feel today will be the strength that you feel tomorrow. Uh, maybe. Um, I, I, I don't know. Uh, but, but like Facebook like has like a ton of these, right? Um, and people are posting them all the time, even Christians. And some of these are fine. Some of these are helpful. Some of them are even good, but ultimately, they're empty. Ultimately. And what I mean by that is that they may very well be words that we can live by, but they are not words that we can die by. There's a difference. They only go so far. They only do so much. And here's, here's really the thing. Man does not really just need another interesting truth claim or inspirational statement that helps him to live a better life. What man really needs is a truth claim that gives him abundant life. 
that gives him eternal life. One of the first memories I have, I told you guys all that I grew up in Sunday school. I grew up in church three times a week um, all my life. Um, that was my parents' life. Um, I was telling someone this morning how much I hated going to Sunday school when I was super young. Like they would, they would, dri- <laughs> they would drop me off like to Sunday school and I would just scream like I was going to prison or something. Like, no, don't leave me here. But one of the first memories I have, one of the first songs I ever memorized was this. The, the B-I-B-L-E. I'm not going to sing it because I don't want to, because this is a good time. The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. I think my mom, that was even one of the, the first uh, songs that my mom had taught me. And it's so stupidly simple and yet so profound if you think about what's being said, what's being confessed, right? It's so elementary and yet it is so crucial to our worldview, and to life. Um, This little Sunday school song has proven to be one of the greatest, most beneficial sayings um, for my life and in my life. And it's not just because I was taught it or I heard it, but it's because I believed it when I heard it. When I heard that song, I believed every bit of what the words claimed. Um, The full belief that the Bible is the ultimate authority. The ultimate authority. That the Bible is absolute truth. Not just for some people, but for everybody. For everybody. That it's universal. That there's nothing higher that we can appeal to informationally in this life. And we find here in our text this morning that this belief concerning what kind of word this is, right here, is the difference really between knowing about God and knowing God. This is what we see here with the Thessalonians. Look at verse 13. We thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So so you accepted it, the word we proclaim to you, Paul says, not as the word of men, as if it were of human origin, Right? But as it really is, the word of God, which is of divine origin, they're two different things. And I love that Paul says here, but, but as what it really is, right? Which you would say is that if something appears to be a certain way, but it's actually much more than that, you would, you would use a line like that, like what Paul's using. Because it appears with the word of God, with scripture, as though man has written it, and man has translated it, and man has distributed it and has preserved it and is speaking it, but that really ain't it. It's way more than all of those things in and of itself. So what is it really? Our Bibles make it really clear what it is. We have no shortage of like really clear explanations of what this really is that we hold, right? Second Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is what? It's breathed out by God, right? It's God-breathed. In other words, it originated everything we have here there, not here. This word originates there, not here. 2 Peter 1.21, for no prophecy, and prophecy does not mean strictly that you're foretelling something that is yet to happen. Prophecy simply means to bring forth the oracles of God. 
to make the things of God known. That's what it means. So scripture could be considered prophecy, the entire book. It's to bring forth the oracles of God. Second Peter 1.21 says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, the will of man, but man spoke from God as they were what? Moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit. You can almost picture one agent picking up another agent and throwing him over his shoulders and taking him for a ride. This is actually kind of a picture of what's happened with what we have with the Bible, where God has picked up men throughout history and thrown them over his shoulder and used them as an instrument to speak to other men. That's what we have. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, long ago, many times, in many ways, who spoke? God spoke. God spoke to our fathers, men, by the prophets, men. So God spoke through men to men. That's how he does it. That's how he's, he's chose to do it. But in these last days, he's spoken to us, how? Through his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. This is what we have in our hands, guys. I hope you understand that. This is what we have in our hands. This is what we have on the back of our toilet seats, right? And in our cars, and like every room of the house, we have so many of these. We have an abundance of these things. This is, this is not just another book. We have the word of God revealed to mankind in our hands, in our possession. God, through man, has spoken to us because that's how he's chosen to do it. So what we see here, the word of God is not a bunch of words written by people about God. The word of God's a bunch of words written by God through people about himself. There's a difference. Are we all good with that? Well, cool. And, and, and the, the difference between those who are truly, honestly, just to say it straight up, born again or Christ followers and those who aren't really comes down to what we believe about the word of God, about that which we're getting this information about God from. For instance, John chapter 10, Jesus speaks to this. He says in John chapter 10, uh, My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. I want you to notice that they're not uh, his sheep because they believed. They believed, followed, because they're already his sheep. And this is really kind of the, the narrative that we see throughout the Bible, is that we've got a bunch of disenfranchised sheep that belong to a flock that, that the, the chief shepherd has definitely appointed as his. And yet we're scattered. We're all over the place. We're lost. We don't even maybe know that we're sheep. And so the whole story, everything that you and I are doing, everything that the church is doing right now globally is having the Word of God funnel through us to call home His disenfranchised sheep. And they know who it is when they hear this word. Because it's the word of God and not the word of man. That's how the sheep know who it is. So when they hear it, they go, oh, there's my dad. That's my dad talking. That's my shepherd talking. Right? Uh, I grew up on a cul-de-sac of uh, Southern California. Um, I think there were 11 homes and like 28 kids. It was like the best. It was the best. There was always stuff going on somewhere. And, and each night around dinner time in the summer, uh, uh, around five-ish, parents would start funneling out of their houses and calling from the driveway, dinner. You know what I'm saying? 
And you couldn't necessarily see them depending on where we were or what we were doing or whose backyard we were in, like whatever was going on. But I knew when I heard dinner yelled, if it was my dad's voice or if it was someone else's dad's voice. I knew when it was my dad that came out and yelled dinner. And it was like, oh, I got to go. That's my dad. It's the same thing with the word of God, with his sheep. His sheep know when they hear. They know it's not man speaking. They know it's not man just offering them uh, 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 another life help, right? They know, oh, this is the greatest authority. This is my dad. That's what Jesus is basically saying there. My sheep hear my voice. They follow me. So, so what, what is it that calls sinners home? What is it that calls lost sheep back into the fold? What collects us and brings us back together? Um, it's his voice. It's his word. And it's knowing the difference between his voice and someone else's. His sheep know it is the word of God and not the word of men when they hear it. This takes us back to chapter 1, kind of, verses uh, 4 and 5, if you let your eyes go over there real quick. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has, what? Chosen you because, so here's the reason why, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. In, in other words, the, 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 the gospel word is not alone. We talked about this way back there in chapter 1. It has company. The gospel word, when it saves, has power because it's the Holy Spirit of God that is joined together with it, that is going out and making it effectual, calling home those who are His. The gospel word is not alone. It has company. The gospel word is not just man's word, is the point. It's God's word. It's something otherworldly. It's something divine, not human. And because it's God's and not man's, it is known by the recipient that they are actually hearing from God the highest authority when they hear it. And the ones who know these words are from God and not man are those who are his sheep. This is why it makes me really nervous when I come in contact with people who claim to be Jesus followers, continually weighing out secular philosophies over or alongside their Bibles in areas where the Bible has clearly spoken. Drives me nuts, makes me nervous. Like, what's going on here? What's going on? It makes me nervous because it tells me that they look at their scriptures the same way that they look at the words of men, with no distinction or conviction. Which one do I like more in this instance? Do I like what the world's telling me or what this source is telling me or my Bible's? Like we can just weigh that out and pick which one we want. Which one do I prefer? Right? As if they're all on the same level. I'm scared for them. I'm scared when that goes down because the Word of God is not just yet another handbook for happy living. It's a person. The Word of God is a person. In the beginning, and the Word was, and the Word, jump down to verse 14, and the Word tabernacled among us, became flesh, right? It's not just words. It's a person that we're dealing with here, that we're talking about. See, when we come to this word, the Bible, we come knowing for certain that there is no higher authority that exists for you and I to appeal to with our lives and with our actions. None. Because we know that this is God speaking. We know that this is God speaking. The Thessalonians, according to Paul, did not just pass this message off as another man's opinion or interpretation of necessity, but as ultimate and absolute 
truth. And Paul knows this of them. How? Due to the way that they responded. Due to the way that they responded, he knew that they received it as God's word and not men's. Verse 14 shows us this. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God and Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. How was it that Paul, above all else, that Paul knew that these guys had really, truly met the Lord? It wasn't because they got a new house. It wasn't because they got a new car. It wasn't because they got a new spouse. It wasn't because all of their physical ailments and infirmities were healed and cured and gone. Right? It was because their lives actually got more challenging due to following Christ, and they were happy and confident to meet that challenge because the Word of God was at work in them. That's how he knew that these guys really had an encounter with the Lord. It wasn't because their lives got better. It was because their lives got more challenging, and yet they were filled up even that much more with joy in enduring the challenge. That's what's being said there. What is that? That's something supernatural, not worldly, that can do that in us. One of the true marks of the one who's received the word of God and been saved by it is that he has now been, in ways, set against the world. We've now been set against the world in ways. And the Christian is not set against the world because we're big jerks. And I know that some of you are and you need to repent. (laughs) You didn't earn or deserve any of what you are in Christ. So stop acting like you're better than other people in this world. You know what I'm saying? The best thing about me is Jesus. That's it. And those of you who know me know that's a true statement. Jesus is the best thing about me. And whether you know it or not, I'm, gonna, I'm here to tell you, he's the best thing about you too. By the grace of God, you are what you are, you have what you have. And we are here because it's such a free gift that we know we don't deserve to call out further to other people that don't deserve it with that same message. We are not set against the world because we're jerks, because we can point at them and say, you're doing this wrong, you're doing that wrong, you're doing that wrong, I don't like who you're voting for. Da-da-da. Like Christians are doing it more than ever right now. No, that's not what should be setting us against the world. It's that we follow a big Jesus that should be setting us against the world. We're not set against men because we're arrogant or contentious or unkind due to our newfound position in Christ, but we're set against men in that we have now been bound to a Savior who men were set against. Jesus was counterculture. And those who follow Him, follow Him upstream. Upstream. Our message, our instruction book, our worldview, our reason for living are all in opposition to the direction that the world is flowing. It's different. The opposition that now exists between the believer and the world exists because the believer is no longer of the world and he knows it. Because Jesus is the reason and the world hated Jesus, they're going to hate us too. This is a Beatitudes 101, right? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Being bound to Jesus has set us in opposition 
to men. Many of us, I think, can derive pleasure in reading a text like that out of the Beatitudes. I know I've always kind of looked at the Beatitudes and gone like, yeah, this is my team, this is where I'm at, without ever really experiencing or having any idea what those words mean because of the country that I live in and the time that I live in and the parents that I had. <laughs> like, like all those factors, like I, I look at it and it's like, that's right, they're going to hate us. And, and yet I, like have, I, 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 I can't like appropriate that to myself because I've never really experienced what's being... I can't relate to it. I can't relate to it. You and I have no real way of comprehending this most basic characteristic of Christianity here in America because we've been, for most part, a Christianized nation. Now, I'm not complaining. I'm down. Um, with, like, if I could have chose... Uh, before I was born, I, I, I think I would have chose the Christianized place <laughs> over the unchristianized place. But, but the truth is that you and I haven't really had to rock the boat as Jesus followers in any way because the boats always appeared to be balanced, right? Only now are we beginning to see the public opposition and maybe even some hate or disdain towards true Christ followers. But in large part, we only read about these things in our scriptures without ever experiencing them for ourselves in our lives. But in the earliest days of the church, in the earliest days of the church, if you got saved and you became a Christian, you paid for it. You paid for it. And the reason that you were willing to pay for it is because you knew you were standing on the words of God and not men. You paid for it in your neighborhood. You paid for it in your family. You paid for it in your job and your reputation and your freedom and oftentimes with your lives. And you were happy to do so, it seems. At the end of the day, these people knew that that which they were following was the highest authority that existed, which is God. They knew that if God is for me, which is the highest authority set over all things that are opposing me right now, then who can really, at the end of the day, be against me? Who can conquer what it is that God's doing with me and in me? They knew that. And so they would lose their jobs. And they were willing to lose people in their families and being cut off for the sake of knowing that. Not only were these new converts here in, in Thessalonica having to experience persecution, but, but Paul, remember, had to flee Thessalonica after just a few weeks of being there because they had wanted posters, basically, of this guy hanging all over the city. Paul, just like always, would go into a place and disrupt it a little bit with what he would say about Jesus. And so these guys already knew full on who he was, and uh, they chased him out, basically. And uh, it's, still, it's still his circumstance as he writes this letter that you and I are reading right now, one year later to them. He can't go back yet. The wanted posters are still up. They're still looking for him. Right? And so he sends Timothy. We find that out in chapter 3. I don't know if they played like rock, paper, scissors to see who would go to this hostile city or like what happened, but like Timothy drew the short straw or the long one or whatever it is, and he went. And so the reports are coming from uh, Timothy as far as the information that Paul has here. But the, the bottom line is this. These guys did what they did, endured what they did, because they received the word as God's word and not man's. They knew they could trust it. They knew that even if they lost everything, it was right because God is right. Verse 15. 
Paul goes on to say, and this is speaking of Israel, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. All right, you ready for what this is really saying? I know this is a weird statement, but we'll just like put a little more strength on it, okay? Here's what, what's being said. The chosen people of God killed God. The chosen people of God killed the messengers of God. The chosen people of God sought to kill the followers of God, all in the name of God. It's unbelievable, really, to think about. But this is what we have. This is what we have here. That the ones who claimed to be the most right were the most wrong is amazing. That the ones who claimed to be the most innocent were the most guilty. And that the ones who claimed to be the most joined together with God were the furthest from him, the most opposed to him. How deceived they were, how wicked they were, and how responsible they were. Now, here's the catch. It can be really easy for us non-Israelites to read a verse like this and get a little bit puffed up or maybe even find ourselves becoming a bit anti-Semitic. Boasting against the branches, as Paul would say in Romans chapter 11. And so it's good for us to ask ourselves from time to time, who killed Jesus, right? Here's the list. Number one, the Sanhedrin did, right? Sanhedrin was the Jewish high council for Israel's high court and responsible for enforcing the Mosaic law. Which brings us to the next conspirator, Joseph Caiaphas, who was the high priest of of that said council. He was the most powerful man, basically, in Israel at the time, and the buck stopped with him. If he gave a green light, the light was green. Which brings us to Pontius Pilate, because he was the Roman version of that. right? He was a Roman governor of Judea at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, so... When he gave a green light or allowed something, it, it went. Judas Iscariot, of course, right? Uh, the disciple of Jesus that, interestingly enough, was chosen by Jesus to be his disciple, even though he would betray him in the garden for just a small amount of money because the money that he was dipping into out of the disciples' money bag wasn't enough, I guess. Number five, the centurion, which is an unknown officer of the ancient Roman army, ordered to, by, uh, by the court to carry out and oversee the crucifixion. Six, Herod Antipas, who was the ruler of Perea and Galilee, appointed by the Romans. Jesus was under the jurisdiction of Herod. Herod hated him ever since the day Jesus was born. Hated him. Right? We can add here uh, the crowd. You remember when they bought, brought Jesus out along with another guy named Barabbas? That was Pilate's idea to get off the hook and have his hands clean was to let the people decide. So they bring out a guy that was truly filthy and guilty against the guy that they weren't sure was, at least Pilate wasn't, and had the crowd decide. And who did the crowd call for? And, and finally, um, you did it, right? You had to know it was coming. You did it, and I did it, we did it, we killed Jesus, every single one of us. Isaiah 53 confirms this, verses 5 and 6, he was pierced, why? For our transgressions. 
If there were no transgressions, there's no piercing. That's you and me. He's crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. With his wounds, we are healed. All we, not just Israel, like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, which is away from him. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. We did it. We killed Jesus. According to Scripture, too, if we were part of the crowd that day when Jesus came out and Barabbas came out, we would also have had on Team Barabbas shirts instead of Team Jesus shirts. Like, I, think, I feel like some of us could probably look back and be like, or read it in our Bibles and be like, I never would have done that. I never would have hollered for Barabbas to be uh, released and for Jesus to be murdered. Yes, you would have. You, you, you would have. And so we're, we find ourselves in that crowd even back then hoping that Barabbas will be released to us and we'll find mercy, right? But we're also, as you've heard here before, Barabbas as well. We're the, we're the one who's actually guilty that's being released because of a substitute that would stand in for us, right? You and I are just dirty all the way around. I mean, we're, there's, we're not, you can't look at a good hero in the Bible, point at it, and be like, that's us. It's just not. We're guilty. We sent Jesus to the cross. We murdered Jesus. And praise God, God was willing to be murdered for people like us. Praise God. That's why we're all here today, right? Ain't because we're rad. It ain't because we're good enough. Because we ain't good enough. It ain't because we figured something out intellectually. Right? You and I are here by the grace of God because he's granted us the gift of repentance that we may run to him instead of away from him, that we may know him instead of be estranged to him, that we may be embraced by him rather than giving him the finger, which is all you and I have ever done, according to Romans chapter 1. You and I are straight-up rebels that don't like God or what he's about. Praise God that he didn't allow us to stay there. That he's given us new hearts and in that given us new minds that we may know him fully and completely and be loved by him fully and completely. This is what we're here celebrating every Sunday, right? This is why we come together. This is why there's a room of misfits like this called the Christian Church from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of upbringings, all kinds of stories Right? We heard a couple today. Common denominator, Jesus is the answer. It's all about him. It's all about Christ. It's all about his accomplishment, not ours. Because we don't have we don't have a good resume. We're actually we're actually gonna get there. Considering that it was Israel's actual denial, rejection, murder of the one who came bodily to them at that time and place of his incarnation. They have Israel once more filled up, or uh, they always have, but they have once again filled up the measure of their sins, right? We see that in verse 16 here, which says, uh, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as to fill up the measure of their sins, always is inserted in there. 
These guys used up all their credit. They used up all their credit. Over and over again. Killed the prophets. They killed God. They killed the followers of Jesus. Over and over again. They used up all their credit. They overstayed their welcome as a peculiar people. Right? They've been squatting for far too long in a place that clearly is not theirs. So they're getting an eviction. They're getting an eviction. It's time for them to be evicted and dispersed. And God sent the Romans to do it. God sent the Romans to do it. Paul knew this at the time. See, see, Rome at the time of this writing already occupied Israel, but about 24 years later, A.D. 70, Rome would simply stop being generous to the Jews, and they would move to a full takeover and a full extermination of the Jewish existence. Does this sound familiar? Something that has repeated itself? Because the spirit of Antichrist is in the world? up to the same old stuff as he's always been up to, right? At this time in history, Israel would cease to have an identity. They would become wanderers. And we could ask, who did this? Well, of course the Romans did it, right? The Romans did it. Well, yeah, but really God did it through the Romans. This is part of how God judged his people at that time was through another people. If you, if you read your Old Testament, you're going to see this everywhere. You're going to see God come to people in judgment through someone else or something else because that's how God works. And uh, he's had it with these guys right now. And so he judges them through the Romans. And, and honestly, I, I believe if you look carefully, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, this is the majority of what we see described and spoken of by Jesus in Matthew chapter 24. Right? The coming of Jesus to those people through the Romans. The wrath of God has indeed come upon them. But the, the good news is that the story doesn't end there. And I, and I don't want to end there. Uh, that would be a horrible verse to end on. You know what I'm saying? Uh, buzzkill. Um, and so, like I said, like it was during Thanksgiving week that I was meditating on this text and putting uh, this sermon together. And so I had come up with uh, three things out of this text that I'm thankful for. Um, and it doesn't take a text like this where you actually have the word in there and the author, the person writing it is actually thankful for something. You can literally close your eyes and play Bible bingo and open your Bible to any page and point to a section of the page and find something in what's written there to be grateful for, right? It's all over the place. And so I came up with three things that I saw in here that I think we all ought to be grateful for. Number one, I'm thankful, like Paul, that the Word of God is still being received by people across the globe, not as the words of men, but as the very words of God. God is still talking to people. The shepherd is still calling lost sheep home. And this is good news. Because I know that the days are getting dark. I know the clouds are coming in. And things are starting to look a lot different than we've ever seen it. And we're wondering, like, has God, like, forsaken this place? Maybe, but not completely. Because God is faithful to complete that which He has determined to do. If He has sheep that are not yet back in place where they belong in the fold, he is going to be certain to get them. I want you guys to know this. 
God wins. God wins on every level. And this, and this really should be like good news for you and I, because we're told to go and evangelize. And I know that it's scary. I know that it's scary sometimes to go out there and put yourself out there and say, what if I don't have the right words? What if I don't have the right answers? What if I don't have all these things? Here's the cool thing. God does. God has the right words. God has the right answers. And beyond that, he's able to actually change a heart. Something you and I can never do when we interact with somebody with the gospel, right? It's a work of the Holy Spirit. God saves still his sheep still know his voice and they will come what is it that jesus says in john 6 all who the the father draws will come not if they decide to not maybe or it's a good possibility jesus is absolutely certain that all of god's sheep will come through the preaching of his word this is good news for you and i and, and, and to think that God, that, that we have the privilege of God using us as the means in which he calls his sheep home. That blows my mind, that we actually get to work alongside him. It's like take your child to work day. You know what I mean? <laughs> Where God's like, I'm going I'm to let you guys come to work with me. And, 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 and like participate in what it is that I'm doing every day, all the time, around the globe. This is good news. I'm thankful that the word of God is still going forward, even in these dark times where it seems the trajectory is backwards and bad, and he's still calling lost sheep home. There's still people hearing it as the word of God and not as the word of man. Number two, I am thankful when I read this text that though it seems many times like evil and wickedness is going unseen and unnoticed and undealt with in this world, it ain't. It ain't. Do you see that in that text? God tells us in Romans, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And I know that you and I get impatient, and so we try to pick up the slack for what God isn't doing, and we go out, and we make messes, and we do stupid things, and we burn bridges instead of build them for the gospel. But God knows what he's doing, and he's going to exact everything that's been done. God has a scorecard, and he's a really good scorekeeper. Do you understand that? So when you turn on the news for five minutes... And you see the headlines or you hear the headlines. And you get so depressed and so bent out of shape because things are so bad. Know that God sees it and cares about it more than you do. That little piece that you saw, that little window of five minutes that you saw and what that did to you, think about this. God sees it all the time, everywhere. Everywhere. He sees all the headlines of all the most horrific events that are going on all the time, everywhere. And he's patient, but he's keeping score. He's going to deal with every bit of it. Vengeance is his. And wrath and judgment, rightly so, righteously, will come upon those who have earned every bit of it. Which brings me to number three. I'm grateful that I'm no longer an object of his wrath. I am grateful that, that, that Jesus Christ has shredded up his scorecard that he had on me. That according to Colossians chapter 2, he has taken it and he has nailed it to the cross. He has taken my rap sheet and nailed it to the cross so that it no longer exists. What exists now is Christ's righteousness on me, for me, in me. No matter what kind of a day I'm having, I'm his and he is mine. And I'm a child of God. When he shows up that day, 
I have, it's, it's not going to be the worst day for me. It's going to be the best day to see him face to face. Because he's not coming to exact anything with me. I'm all paid up. And if you're in Christ, you're paid up too. And you need to be told that every once in a while because we still blow it. We live in an imperfect world with imperfect brains and imperfect bodies and imperfect circumstances. But one day he's going to fix all that. He's got a plan for that, which gives you and I a hope. That one day you and I won't sit around wrestling with sin. We'll be fully enjoying him in his presence. Fully righteous. Praise God for that. This is another reason why you and I need to take the words of God, the words of life, to everybody that God puts in front of us every day. We need to be intentional about what we're doing. Because whether they know it or not, it is the best news they will ever hear. And it is their greatest need. Lord, thank you so much for um, just a reminder of your goodness. God, we thank you um, that you are still saving people through your word. We thank you that you are um, still dealing righteously and justly with sin and wickedness. And we thank you, Lord, that we're no longer under it. I pray for, for anybody maybe who's questioned that or doesn't even, maybe doesn't know where they're at right now, that they would not leave here without knowing where they are with you. And, and so I pray for a full repentance and reception of the gospel that's been preached here today, individually here, that people would own the work of your son, which is to own the righteousness of your son. And so we ask your spirit to move and work and to have your perfect way. And we thank you that we get to be gospel carriers. We thank you that, that, that you bring us to work with you, to, to have front row seats to the, the amazing things that you're doing all around us all the time. And so we trust you, God, and we, we, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for mercy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.